Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. What's going on? Welcome to the Other People Show. I am Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. I hope you're doing all right out there. I have a great program for you today. My guest is Kashana Cauley, author of the debut novel, The Survivalists. I started telling jokes on the internet because my son got big enough that he wasn't like putting random things in his mouth. And I was like doing short stories. I was freelancing a little bit, but I was like, I always wanted to learn how to tell jokes. Like that was always a dream of mine. And then like, so I, I had this Twitter account, but like I had like 200 people. And so I just decided to throw random jokes at them every day until I got a style I liked. And that ended up being successful beyond my wildest dreams. Systemic injustice bothers me deeply as somebody who's both a victim of it and cannot stand seeing other victims of it. I mean, every once in a while, somebody will just be shafted on pay or a job or unionization or something. I, that's the stuff that wakes me up in the morning and gets me angry. I tell jokes about things that I am angry about that, that are real fissures in American society. All right, that was Kashana Cauley. Her debut novel, The Survivalists, is available now from Soft Skull. The Survivalists is a very modern tale set in Brooklyn. At its core, it's about love and money and survival, what it means to be successful within the confines of late capitalism, what it takes to be successful. It's a book with its eye trained on the increasingly high stakes of modern existence at work, at home, in relationships, romantic and otherwise. This is a book that is darkly funny and cutting and insightful and unsettling in equal parts as it tells the story of a young woman named Aretha a perpetually single black lawyer who finds herself in a new relationship and increasingly 
on the brink. My conversation with Kashana Cauley is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Vintage Books, home to bold new voices that help us understand the current moment that we live in. Vintage is proud to offer the novel Eleutheria by Allegra Hyde, available now in trade paperback. I just talked with Allegra Hyde not too long ago on this program. I believe it was last month. We had a great conversation. Eleutheria is about a young activist and idealist named Willa Marks, who flies to the island of Eleutheria in the Caribbean to join a group of echo warriors in their quote-unquote perfect community. But things are not quite as they seem, and time is running out. The New Yorker magazine named Eleutheria one of the best books of 2022, calling it an urgent, absorbing story that asks how we are meant to live. That's Eleutheria by Allegra Hyde available now from Vintage. Today's episode is also brought to you by William Morrow, publisher of the novel The Thing in the Snow by Sean Adams. The Thing in the Snow is a thought-provoking and wryly funny novel. It is equal parts deadpan satire and psychological thriller. It reads like a Samuel Beckett play, and it keeps you turning the pages. I just finished it not too long ago, It kind of creeped me out. It kind of made me laugh. It kind of made me think. I couldn't figure out what was going on. I liked that. I think you're going to like it. It's called The Thing in the Snow. It's a novel by Sean Adams, available now from William Morrow. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show is made available to listeners free of charge. There are no paywalls by design. I don't put up paywalls. I put up the entire archive. I let you guys listen for free, and it's a listener-supported show. That's how the show survives. So if you like the program, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, you can support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. You know how this works. You can get merch, T-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription, and so on and so forth over at Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod if you like this program tip your server the other people podcast has a weekly email newsletter did you know that i do a weekly email newsletter it's free it goes out once a week it's very simple it is essentially an enumerated list of things that i have been reading links to things that i find interesting or funny or both so if you want to read my weekly email newsletter you can sign up at this program's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up for the newsletter at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter at either place. And hey, if you like this podcast, rate it and review it wherever you listen. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, give it a rating, write a review if that's a possibility. It takes a couple minutes. It really helps because It changes the algorithm or something. It makes it easier for new listeners to find the show. So please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. The Other People podcast has its own official YouTube channel. Did you know that? You can watch this show on YouTube. The entire conversation. You can watch Kashana Coley and I talking to one another. That's kind of a new development. Previously, you could just listen on YouTube, but now you can watch. I've started doing video the entire archive of this show is available on YouTube. So go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, 
And when you find the channel, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button. It's free. Likewise, the Other People podcast is now on TikTok. I post highlights, video highlights from the conversation on TikTok every week. I I don't know how to do TikTok, but that's what I'm doing. So if you're a TikTok person, follow the Other People podcast on TikTok. If you have anything to say to me, if you have feedback or you want to tell me a story, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. Send me a letter. Say something. Last but not least, I have a novel out. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It came out just last year, and it's a work of autofiction. It's about my life. It's about what's going on inside my head. If you want to find out about those things, you can read my book. Again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest today, again, is Kashana Cauley. Her debut novel, The Survivalists, is available now from Soft Skull Press. Perhaps you've heard of it. I feel like everybody's talking about this book. Kashana Cauley, in addition to writing novels, also writes for television, most recently for a program called The Great North. She is a former staff writer for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and a former contributing opinion writer for The New York Times. She has also written for Pod Save America on HBO. She's written for The Atlantic, Esquire, The New Yorker, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, you name it. And she has a very popular Twitter feed. Perhaps you follow her on Twitter. Very excited to have Kashana Cauley on this program to get a chance to meet her and talk to her as she makes this debut. Again, the book is called The Survivalists, available now from Soft Skull. Here she is, folks. This is Kashana Cauley. I think that there are a lot of terrifying things about the way we live now, like climate change and disease and stuff. And I think that it's good to be worried about those things, but maybe there's a point when you realize that your worry is controlling your life or you're doing, you're taking actions that seem beyond what you would normally do and you're a little bit worried about them or they're kind of extreme. I think there's a difference between reading the news a lot and being really, really well aware and then going, you know what? I have a year's worth of food. I have a whole bunch of guns. And, you know, if danger comes to my door, you know, maybe I'm John Wick. That You know what I mean? Maybe. I think that's the level at which it might start spinning out of control. Okay. Because like, I never know. Like I talked to, I've been mentioning this lately. I don't know how this has come up more than once, but I talked to David Kep on this show uh, earlier this year. And he wrote this book about, it's like a thriller about like a, one of these solar flares that shuts off power on the whole planet, which is like actually a plausible scenario. Like this could happen theoretically. And so, you know, the world is tipped into disaster mode. And I think one of these things happens once every hundred years, give or take. And it's been like 130 years since the last one. And the last one happened before, like the world was electrified. Do you know what I'm saying? So we haven't really seen the shit hit the fan once we've had power, uh, electric power. And so we went through this, you know, all this conversation and talk about it and how terrifying it is. And then I was like, wow, well, having, you know, having written this book, you must be somebody who's got a year's supply of food and a bunch of guns in the basement or whatever it is. And he's like, oh no, he's like, I can't bring myself to get there. And so it's interesting to like have awareness of the dangers that we face and the way that things may well go and to not take action. Like I don't have, I have kind of a go bag for an earthquake. I live in Los Angeles. Do you live in Los Angeles? I do. I also have a go bag for an earthquake. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So 
Where are you? Yeah. And you're relatively new to town, right? Yeah, I moved here like six months before the pandemic. And then, yeah, oh. I read all the news about how you're supposed to have it go back for an earthquake. So I said, okay, you know, I could do that. Okay. But like, where are you on the scale of like preparedness? I have, other than the earthquake go bag, I have beans and rice and that's it. And if the power goes out, I am going to soak those beans in water until they are soft enough to chew. That's the level <laughs> of prepared that I am. But how, how many, how much beans, how much rice? Like we talking like a six month supply or what? Oh, I'm so bad at like gauging the supplies. Plus I live in a house with two other people and we are big eaters. I honestly think, I think it's six months and it would end up being like a month and a half. That's where yeah. we are. It's like pounds yeah. and pounds. And every time, like every once in a while, the thing I freak out about is every once in a while on Twitter, someone will be like Ebola. And yeah. <laughs> these days, and so I'm always like, okay, this is my Ebola stash. Cause I used to work with a guy from Uganda and he was always like, you don't understand Ebola is like bad. And yeah. so in case Ebola pops up, I'm going to be chewing on my chewy beans. That's yeah. I, I got, uh, I think like when I freaked out, it was after the Houston, uh, hurricane, you know, mm-hmm. where we, you know, there's all this footage of people just like in canoes and, you know, just awfulness. Yeah. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta be ready. You know, if this shit hits the fan here, like it could happen in a different way here, but it could happen just as bad. And then for food though, all I have is like a giant box of like power bars, or, um, <laughs> but they're old now. I think they're past expiration. I got to get some beans and rice is what I got to get. <laughs> and some more power bars. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I don't know what I was, th- I think I was just like, well, what could we survive on that would, you know, give us protein or I don't know what it was, but I think beans and rice is maybe the better way to go. Like dried beans and rice keep for a long time. Mm-hmm. And they're complete protein. I read up on that thanks to vegetarian okay. cookbooks from the seventies. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about weapons? Are we into weapons or no? No, absolutely not. I one at one point I thought there was an intruder at one of my apartment doors, and like there was somebody who was just trying to get in. And it turns out it was like a guy who was drunk on some drugs or whatever, and just mistook our apartment, which looked exactly the same as his for ours. And he was just trying to get in with this key. But at the time I was like, okay, I have a hammer. And then my husband grabbed like a knife from the kitchen and then we grabbed like a chair to jam the door shut and we were just standing there like, okay, this is our plan. We got this. And we didn't end up using any of those things. And after that, we realized we were not weapons people and we decided to concede that to other folks. Well, listen, I think that, you know, it's one thing to have these things on hand. It's another thing to have the presence of mind to quickly grab them. You know, these when there's an, an actual home invasion, it tends to happen quickly when you're not expecting it. You know, it's not like these people send you a heads up. Mm-hmm. And then to suddenly, you know, I think you almost have to be trained to respond properly because I have like pepper spray and a baseball bat and all this stuff. And I, I don't know. I was thinking the other day, I was like, I don't think I would probably grab it. I think I would probably just like run <laughs> or like jam the door. You know, I don't know what I would do, but I doubt it would be something super elegant. I also think there's a hubris involved in going, okay, so like the nukes are going to hit and out of all the people in the world, I'm going to be alive. Like the, I'm going su- <laughs> to Who would want to be alive? I don't understand the, like the desire to be the last man standing after a giant like nuclear event. It just seems like it'd be better to go. I mean, maybe that's bleak, but that's kind of how I feel. Well, after watching Last Man on Earth, I completely agree. They don't make it look fun. I like just hanging out in your empty pool in Phoenix all that. Nah. <laughs> Wait, is that the uh, that's the comedy, the guy from Saturday Night Live? Um, yep. Okay. Will Forte. Yeah, Will Forte. Right, right, right. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Uh, all right. So yeah, you're writing a novel about people. Like another thing that your book made me think about was, uh, you know, late capitalism. Mm-hmm. And the cruelty of it and the way that it kind of chews people up and spits people out or like never even chews people up to begin with. You know what I'm saying? It's just like mm-hmm. it leaves people alienated and isolated and with a deep sense of being on their own. And there's a quote from a character in your book named Brittany where she says, uh, I lost so many jobs and so many friends who didn't want to hang out with someone who didn't have a job. So I only have me and I decided to protect myself. Like that felt like an essential line in the book to me. Like just, it gets to the heart of why these people are the way they are. And I think it's relatable. I think it's something that a lot of people feel as they advance into adult life is this like, oh oh my God, like this is a really cold system. (laughs) And I think that it does, I think it does things to good people. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I, I think it yes. can make good people like ungenerous, not necessarily because they're evil, but because they're scared. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it kind of isolates us from one another and it makes people feel this sense of it's every man for himself or herself. We are scared and our society has a lot of rules. I think honestly, you have to follow a lot of rules to be allowed to belong to society. And if at any point, like you so you end up falling off the path, like you become unemployed or something, people are scared that unemployment is contagious and they will just decide to hide from you or they'll be afraid that you're going to ask them for a job and they don't know how to hook you up with one or they don't know anybody who'll help and they, so they don't feel useful or whatever, so they'll hide from you. I have gone through long periods of unemployment where I have not had that many friends. And the other thing is, I don't know, maybe it's such a tragedy where people go, oh, you're unemployed. It's like difficult to talk about. Like if people get like, divorced friends have shared like similar circumstances you know like this is such a big traumatic in your event in your life and i don't know how to talk about it and so one way to not talk about it is to not text you back right you know? right <laughs> right you know like people 
that that's the thing. I, I feel like people don't know how to help, or like you say, they're scared that it's going to be contagious, or I guess in a worst case scenario, they blame you for it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, well, you just didn't make the right choices or you, you're lazy or whatever it might be, you know, a way to sort of explain it away and to, uh, to feel better about having like zero sense of responsibility to help. <laughs> right. It's like, it's her, it's her job or it's his job to figure it out. I think, especially when I was living in New York, where a lot of conversation is about what are you doing for employment? There's definitely this, well, what are we even going to talk about? Right. <laughs> mentality that comes up sometimes if you don't have a job right are we gonna talk about our lives the weather no well listen i hate i can't stand that line of adult conversation like small talk like what do you do what do you do it's so it's so exhausting i don't care what somebody does i want to hear about what's going on in their lives or you know not like you don't have to get like super touchy-feely with me but like i just feel like that's such a lazy conversation. Like I get, you have to find a way in to get to know somebody, but I think too often it's loaded, you know, it's like a way of investigating somebody's class status or, you know, I don't know how well enmeshed they are in the system. Like, have they found a way to sort of thrive within it? And I don't know, as somebody who sort of like feels alienated and outside of all that, it's, uh, it's not something I love. I gotta be honest. Oh, me neither. I also spent long periods freelancing. And during those periods, I've been invited to like perform at events or talk to people or whatnot. And every once in a while, it'll just be, you know, they'll be like, well, what do you do? And I'll be like, oh, I'm freelancing right now. Well, what do you like really do? I mean, other than that, because freelancing is never a good enough question to somebody who's going on that path. Right. <laughs> and it's just like, I'm, I'm actually doing work that I find fulfilling. It's not like sexy or whatever. It's not high profile, but you know, I'm, I'm writing some things that I care about and I'm happy with that. And yeah, I'm looking for stuff, but my entire identity is not looking for something more stable. Right, right, right. (laughs) Is it any better in LA? Have you found than it is in New York? Cause I know New York, I mean, there's a lot of ambition in New York. It's like the hub of the world economy or whatever. Like I think LA is the hub of maybe the entertainment economy to some degree, but uh, it seems like two sides of the same coin, but is it any different in your six months of being here? I have no idea because I haven't met enough people. I feel like you have to like meet people and ha- get close enough to have those conversations. Oh, yeah. And so I just You've got like know. pandemic LA experience, right? Yes, I have. Yes. <laughs> and I think people are pretty, some people are pretty comfortable pandemicking. Like a lot of folks are just. What yeah. about you? Are you comfortable with it or no? Really? Honestly? Yeah. I mean, I haven't had COVID yet. And I think that's cool, but that's probably because I mostly work from home. Right. <laughs> And I'm, I'm cool with that. I would love to meet people at some point when I feel better about the situation. But I guess this, that is my inner survivalist. So I'm just sort of like, you know, <laughs> I don't know about going on and getting COVID. Listen, listen, we are the same way. I've, I've had COVID, but everybody else in my family has not. And uh, my mom has not. I mean, knock on wood. You know, like I, like people are always like, do you honestly know anybody who hasn't had it yet? And I'm like, yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I've got three people in my household who haven't had it. And you know, maybe this is where, like, I have a son who's immunocompromised. So it's like, we've got to be careful. uh, Or we feel like we've got to be extra careful. But it's like, uh, possibly where my paranoia comes in. And and I'm always looking out like, are people really pretending that this is over? Like, I'm Mm -hmm. always, you know, Eric Fingledang on Twitter, that doctor. Uh, yep. His last name is now a verb in our household. We're like, I'm Fingledinging. Like, it's, you know, like, it's, a, <laughs> it's like one in the morning and I'm on my phone just like, oh, my God. Like, he's running through the stats, you know, like all over the world. And I'm like, this shit is not over yet. People are pretending that it is. Like, I find that 
and and this is sort of thematically connected to your book. Like I find this like insistence that things are normal versus like hard data coming in from various places around the world, like wherever a hotspot is and how the vi- you know virus is sort of mutating and, and migrating all over the place. There's like a real dissonance there. And it sort of makes me a little bit crazy mm-hmm. because I feel like people aren't living in reality. Uh, you have that? <laughs> I completely agree. I am between TV jobs right now other than one development thing. And, but at my last gig, like people were kind of getting it in rounds, you know, during the period where everybody was saying it was over, like my coworkers would keep getting COVID. And so somebody would show up and then like have a cough for six weeks and be like, so when can I work out again? And it was just like, why do you want to work out while you still have the cough? Yeah. Like, could, could you chill? Like you have one body, you know, yeah. one life. Yeah. <laughs> Surely the workout can wait a couple of weeks or months or whenever you stop coughing. Not in LA. The workout cannot wait. <laughs> We, people will people will go to Pilates with like like pneumonia, you know. They don't care. Uh, so, this book is about I think the dissolution of the American dream. It's about uh, contemporary hustle culture. I got to say too, there's something uh, like just to give listeners an overview. Your protagonist is named Aretha. She is single. It's millennial, right? That's the generation? Yeah. Okay. Single millennial New Yorker uh, lawyer who is sort of disaffected in her work life, her day job life, and is, you know, dating a lot. And then she meets this guy named Aaron, who's sort of like, great guy. It's like, a you know, after all these unhappy dates, she goes on a date with Aaron and he's like, got his shit together. He's, he's got kind of a sunny personality. And he runs his own like boutique coffee company. He's a homeowner, like all these things. He's ticking all these boxes. But the I laughed when I read because the name of his coffee company is called Tactical Coffee. Mm-hmm. And uh, as somebody who's like, I've got like a passing fluency in entrepreneur culture just because I'm always trying to like think of hustles like everybody else. And I remember reading something. I'm reading something online I think about like, you know, how these people made a great business. And it was these guys who started this company called Black Rifle Coffee. <laughs> was that was that an influence? Was that I, I felt like Tactical Coffee was sort of like a little bit of a, a nod or a joke at that. Am you know, I it's right? funny. I didn't find them until three years in, six drafts in. I was oh, okay. in Vegas. And all of a sudden, like walking through a souvenir shop and they had Black Rifle Coffee. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> It's, I mean, but you're, you're somehow predictive. You like, I feel like writers and artists who ha- have like, especially somebody like you, who I think has like a really good, like internal weather vane for like the culture and the, the politics of the time and all that kind of stuff. Like sometimes there are these sort of synchronicities, right? Where you mm-hmm. come up with something creatively that just happens to align with something that's actually happening out there. And for people listening who don't know, like Black Rifle Coffee is like a right wing, coffee company because like Starbucks is too femme. (laughs) They've made a mint. These guys, they found their market. It's like for bros who want like manly coffee. They want like a weapon on the bag of coffee that they buy. (laughs) A certain percentage of their sales goes to like military causes. They've got like this whole brand. I've just spent days on their website. I am 
fast. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, right? This is like the world that we live in now. And I'm like, I think what gets to me is the fact that they're so successful. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, you just like the coffee that they're selling is no different, I would posit, than yep. any other coffee out there. But the brand that they're selling is identity based. You know what I'm saying? It's like mm-hmm. it's the rifle on the package that they're selling to get people to feel a sense of like alignment and identification with them. And that shit works. So in the like, names I don't of know the what... beans, fighting terrorist blend, like <laughs> <laughs> AR-15 dark. It's oh like... my God. Is, is, is that, is that for real? Is it? AR-15? No, I'm riffing, but like basically, yes, the names of the, the blends of the coffee do evoke weapons, strength and the military. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, right? So there we go. That that I feel like is somehow like uh, emblematic of the world that you're depicting in your book. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about like prepping, uh, you know, as it as it exists in this book. You kind of touched on this earlier, but like these people collectively own a home. It's Aaron, who is Aretha's love interest, and then she ends up moving in with them. And Aaron has two roommates, Brittany, who is, well, how do you describe her? Like as angry Flojo, there are some great descriptions in the book, like the human equivalent of a closed fist or something like that. But she's sort of like opaque in her presentation. It's like it's hard, hard person to read, but she's got some anger in her. She's usually wearing a tracksuit and she's like very committed to self-protection. Mm-hmm. Is there anything I'm missing? Yeah, I think I described her as Corella DeVille in track pants. Okay, there we go. And then James, the other guy, is uh, like a former journalist who used to work at the Washington Post, but then lost his gig because of plagiarism. And I think he's kind of bitter about it. He drinks a lot. He's sort of morose, quiet, also kind of hard to read, you know, like not necessarily the most outgoing guy. Uh, And those two people are often... Uh, whom Aretha is interacting with because uh, Aaron's often out like traveling around the world in search of like, you know, exquisite coffee beans. Right. Yep. And these people not only are running guns, which is how they make money, but they're also collecting, you know, like a stockpile of weapons for whatever shit eventually hits the fan, but they've built like their, their level of commitment just so that listeners understand is that they've built a bunker big enough for four people under their backyard, which I suppose is like what for like a nuclear event or for when they need to hide out or when like the next uh, hurricane hits, which, you know, again, this book reminded me of that. Like New York is now in like a a hurricane zone. I don't think Mm I, you know, 10 or even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have associated it with that. But after Sandy, it's like, Oh yeah, this shit can happen in New York now. Like, if the right, if the weather hits the right way. So they're sort of prepared for all of that stuff. And I guess like what happens in the book or the story that you're telling is that Aretha is kind of like this person who's walked the straight and narrow. She's kind of done everything the quote unquote right way. And over the course of your novel, she's splintering off of that. She's sort of leaving behind, you know, that identity or that version of herself and finding that she, at least to some degree, responds to the Brittany and the James, like worldview. That's the tension in the book, right? Mm-hmm. How much of that 
do you, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm curious how much of that you feel personally. <laughs> like, have you, like, have you ever thought to yourself, you know what, like, I'm going to fully go rogue because that was another phrase that I thought of. I was like, this is about a, a woman who's going rogue kind of, or at least flirting with going fully rogue. You ever come the, close? The, not really. I am so boring. Like, <laughs> just wake up in the morning and I make my coffee and I raise my kid and I write things down. But Aretha is basically, to me, someone who is having more fun than I am about the frustrations of late capitalism. I feel like I I have definitely felt her alienation. I've definitely felt her inability to stick him on, on the path to success and partner. I have definitely felt her frustration with just always following the rules all the time and not having that work for you at all. I think I belong to a generation of people that was told, you know, well, you go to college and you'll be fine. Well, you buy a house and you'll be fine. And a lot of us are going to college and ending up with absolutely insane amounts of student debt and not being fine and then not finding enough job security to pay that debt and then not being fine and then not being able to afford that house and then not being fine. Right. And I, so the part of Aretha that is 100% me is the part who is just like, I was, I was promised all these things and like, I'm black. I wasn't promised them a hundred percent. Like I, we occupy a different economic and social strata than a lot of folks, but I still felt that promise. And I, I, I do feel like I wake up every day and I look that promise in the eye and I go, what were they telling us? You know, why, why did I make some of these straight line decisions? Why did I think the last job I had was the job I'm going to have forever? You know, why am I such a sucker? Right. Is there something else out there for me? It's, it's not gun running and it's not survivalism, but is there, is there some other way of existence under late capitalism that is more satisfying than pretending I was going to be a lawyer for 20 years? Right. Right. Well, you were a lawyer. That was something I wanted to get to. Like your protagonist, you were a lawyer, I believe an antitrust lawyer. Yes. Okay. So just to uh, prove to you how little I know in general, but especially about lawyering, like what does an antitrust lawyer do? <laughs> I don't even know. Antitrust, it feels kind of financial. I don't know. But like, what is antitrust? I, I would say back that antitrust lawyers functionally do nothing because no one is trying to break up the trusts. It, theoretically, antitrust lawyers are there to make sure that competition is maintained. But the Supreme Court made it in the 70s so that you really can't consider the role of the consumer in terms of like whether, say, if two companies merge, you know, is that good for the consumer? You're not supposed to think about that. You're supposed to think about the market. And so you're not thinking about, you know, are prices lower? Are there more locations of like a grocery store under this merger? You're just supposed to go, well, something, something, the invisible hand of the market, you know, which is basically just we should let them merge because they're companies and who are we to stand in their way? But theoretically, antitrust law was invented in like the early 1900s to try to make things better for not just the economy, but the consumer to make prices lower, to make goods more available. It just doesn't fulfill that function. So in in reality, what an antitrust lawyer does is I was on the defense side. So like rich companies would hire me and the other lawyers at my firm to say that they weren't doing anything anti-competitive. And if you're on the government side, which I did briefly a couple of times, you're being hired to go, well, I mean, is there anything that is bad about this merger? But probably not. So we probably are going to let it go through. And is there anything anti-competitive here? We think there is. And let's ask for enough docs and let's genuinely try to prove this. But at the end of the day, you know, given 40 years of Supreme Court cases that say that we don't really care about the consumer, we're probably not going to find anything that will truly prove that somebody has a monopoly. And even if we do, we're not going to break up the company. We are not necessarily sure how to break up companies, but we also just 
like mood wise, that, that's not really the mood we're in. We're not going to go around <laughs> breaking up like Google because we think they control ad search. That's that's kind of edgy. Right. So yeah, functionally antitrust lawyers do nothing. But that's what gotta, I went but to, I, <laughs> that's got to be dispiriting though, right? Is it dispiriting? Was it dispiriting for you as a lawyer to be like, because I, I, first of all, I sense that maybe your sympathy would be on the side of the consumer. Uh, but then to be working in the defense side and to also just be realizing that like, there's really not much sympathy out there, like systemically for the consumer position. It's just like, Mm -hmm. like corporations, what they spend billions to lobby Congress. They sort of run the show, right? I mean, it's a, it's kind of a fix. It's kind of a, a rigged game, right? It ate me alive. I was an economics major in college too, which is probably how I ended up in this. And I wanted to be consumer focused. I wanted like lower prices and like, <laughs> you know, things that were better for the consumer for everyone. I'm, I'm more of a, a worker's rights check. And so it really was depressing to go and practice this thing of law and realize that, I mean, you end up doing a lot of defense type stuff coming out of law school because the loans are awful. I mean, I had like 240,000 student debt, okay? Like yeah. you... <laughs> Which is why it makes more sense for a lot of people who do not have, I, I'm working class, the backgrounds where you can sit there and cover law school tuition and the expenses and whatever, to go and work defense sites so you can pay off the loans. And then theoretically, after you pay off the loans, you're supposed to do something that's more for you. You know what I mean? But they, it, it might take like 15 years to do that, 30 years to pay off the loans. And so by that time, I mean, are you even still a lawyer? They're firing a lot of lawyers. They were firing a lot of lawyers in 2008. The industry has shrunk a lot since then. There aren't a lot of opportunities to work in-house in companies. The government had a hiring freeze when I was like five years out. And so they couldn't hire anybody, which sucks. I, I kind of wanted to go back to government and at least like pretend to be on the good side, <laughs> even yeah. if the government wasn't accomplishing what I, I wanted them to antitrust wise. It was frustrating the whole time. And I mean, I had, but I... Honestly, I was doing all right. I mean, I had friends who were representing banks that had financed apartheid on the defense side. Like as a corporate lawyer, it can get really dark. I, you know, I think most people think of the legal profession and being an attorney and, you know, getting out of law school and passing the bar and working for some big corporation as an attorney. It's like, oh, you got it made. But Mm -hmm. even that profession is squeezed. And uh, I've also heard that a lot of lawyers are not happy, that even though the pay can be good, that the work itself can be really dispiriting or just like such a grind, like you're working mm-hmm. what 60 hour weeks and people are just not happy. Is that, does that square with your experience? Oh, I'll let you know when I meet a happy lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Including everybody I know from law school and myself and every lawyer I've ever met afterwards. And Oh yeah. First lawyer I meet will be the first happy lawyer. Wow. Maybe out there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you, but you have had a very, I think, from the outside looking in, a very a varied and very successful career. And you've been able to transition to a creative career with a plum, you know? And I want to track that because I think listeners will be curious, like, how you did it. You have a, a lawyer job and then somehow you go from that to having, like, a really funny Twitter feed to writing for, what, Trevor Noah's The Daily Show pod save america you're writing for tv out here now i think there's a show called the great north if i have that right um can you just talk a little bit about getting from antitrust law to entertainment um i won't lie i have a financially and emotionally supportive husband i think it's important to tell the truth about that (laughs) he can cover a lot of our expenses i can screw around on the creative side 
but it was one thing, it was something that I wanted to do since I was 10, be a writer. I wrote bad books when I was 10. I was like, I'm going to write noir and then I'm going to illustrate it. And I have no idea what like detectives even are when I was 10, but I got to <laughs> figure this out. And then I wrote bad poetry and then I wrote good poetry and then I wrote bad prose and then I wrote good prose. And I had a really supportive English teacher, but like, yeah, somewhere in that transition, I just decided to go back to that whole school of things where I wrote, you know, badly before I could write better and started sending my work out and doing, I started out in short stories. I started out sending things to literary journals. <laughs> and then I met a woman at a party who was like, is there any way you could do an essay about my kind of gross hometown, Madison, Wisconsin, which has major issues that people don't love to love to talk about on things like race. Um, That's where you're and from. I never, yes. Okay. Well, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. Oh, no way. Where? Yeah, I was born in Milwaukee. I grew up. Oh, in- no way. Yeah. Like Milwaukee, the city. Like I grew up in Cedarburg, little like yep. you know, town I've been there. north of. Yeah. It's like got like a, <laughs> when I was a kid, this was the 70s and the 80s. So, you know, I'm old, but uh, it was a lovely like kind of there was like a general store, you know, and like. A, yep. It's really cute. It's cute. It's cute. But it's I feel like it's changed a lot. I read a story in Politico about Cedarburg in the 20. I think it was either 2016 or the 2020 election cycle. And I was like, whoa, like it feels like it took a took a turn like it was very working class and like friendly i don't know that's just my memory of it i left when i was 11 so i have like sort of an idealized memory of it but uh i am a wisconsinite and so yeah we're gonna talk about it but i just wanted to flag that you're from madison you were at a party and this woman was talking to you about an essay and i said oh i can write an essay even though i'd never written an essay for publication before i was like how many words do you need what's your deadline and so i just bluffed my way through that uh-huh. and then it accidentally did really well and then people started emailing me to write other essays and then what's funny is i think well oh and then my third piece was for the atlantic and everything just like about growing up in the 90s when andrew wakefield was good science and people genuinely believed the mmr vaccine caused autism and like having let go of that way of thinking when i had my own kid Uh (laughs) and just nobody i guess had written about just actually used to like being an anti-vaxxer back in the day and changing your mind and it got like eight hundred thousand views and an absolute ton like comment sections were insane in like 2015 and then people started writing me for other things and then i yeah the Daily Show was the DM thing. Like somebody DM'd me at like three in the morning on Twitter. From the Daily Show. F- from the Daily Show. Yeah. Okay, but wait, like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so you start you start writing these essays. The essay one of the essays goes viral essentially. Mm-hmm. And you were an anti-vaxer. Yep. And then you had a kid. I t- that that's relatable because I always say to, I think about people who are anti-vaxxers. I'm like, do you have children? I guess there are some parents who are like, I'm not vaccinating my kid. But- mm-hmm. You know, every doctor, like my doctor is an eminently rational human and she's just like, vaccinate your kid. <laughs> like, you know, it's hard to, I don't know what ground I'm standing on. Like, I'm kind of paranoid about what I put in my body and like, I sort of get the temperament, but like, I don't know, like so many millions and millions and billions of people are vaccinated. I think we would know if it was like really fucking people up, like in mass, right? I don't mm-hmm. know. But uh, anyway, the, the uh, essay goes viral. And then from there, what? Like, is that how oh, I it... skipped a bunch of stuff? I started telling jokes on the internet because my son got big enough that he wasn't like putting random things in his mouth. And I was like doing short stories. I was freelancing a little bit, but I was like, I always wanted to learn how to tell jokes. Like that was always a dream of mine. And then like, so I, I had this Twitter account, but like I had like 200 people. And so I just decided to throw random jokes at them every day until I got a style I liked. 
and that ended up being successful beyond my wildest dreams. Okay, um, what, what's the style? What was the? What did you <laughs> like? It sounds like you were actually like systematic about it. Like you were actually testing, you know, and then like trying to hone like a, a delivery pattern or something. Like because you've had great success on Twitter. How do you? How did you do it? What is the style? Uh, I guess. A lot of my twists are mean. I really feel like this has been just a banner era for mean comedy. <laughs> People were really depressed about like the like the late Obama era and then definitely depressed about Trump. And if you just woke up in the morning and like framed your punchlines in a mean way, people were like, Yeah, yeah, let's be let's be dicks. <laughs> but you're but um, you, I would say that your tweets have like a moral your moral compass is good. You know, like I feel like you're tweeting from a place of goodness and you have the you're punching up. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you're you're I feel like your targets are at least from my perspective, the right targets. If your jokes Systemic are injustice bothers me deeply yeah. as somebody who's both a victim of it and cannot stand seeing other victims of it. I mean, every once in a while, somebody will just be shafted on pay or a job or unionization or something. I, that's the stuff that wakes me up in the morning and gets me angry. I tell jokes about things that I am angry about that, that are real fissures in American society. But I, I want to joke about them because I, I don't know. I think I got around to, I don't want to listen to this seriously. Like how would I prefer to receive this information? Right. <laughs> it's like a spoon. Sorry, a bunch of yeah. It's a spoonful of sugar, right? It helps, you know, it mm-hmm. helps people actually like deal with this stuff because it's otherwise it's too painful or just onerous. And I, I think that uh, trying to like, some people have like a gift, I guess when it comes to joke telling or a gift when it comes to Twitter and I'm endlessly fascinated with like, uh, like uh, how certain people's accounts take off. I guess it just like people start to retweet you. The algorithm yeah. starts to, the algorithm starts to like you. Cause you've been a, you've been a mainstay in my feed for a long time, you know? And I'm always fascinated. I'm like, Oh, the algorithm is delivering so-and-so there are certain people or certain feeds that I just get. And I always wonder why, but do, do you have a sense like when you trace it back uh, as to like how it really took off? Was there like a famous person who started to retweet you or was there something that happened that you felt like elevated it suddenly? Dan Savage started retweeting me like every day, okay. like seven years ago. And he had like 300,000 people. That, that'll yeah. do it. I can't, <laughs> that was definitely like an inflection point. I, all of a sudden I was getting all these people. And I was just like, whoa, um, I don't know that, that you guys really want to be here, but thanks. Um, <laughs> But in general, I have been adopted by a succession of bigger accounts over time. And when I got hired at The Daily Show, I got so many comedy people and we all started retweeting each other, but they were much, much bigger accounts than me. I had like 26,000 people then. And we all just started, but they had, a lot of them had similar sensibilities. I like comedy writers a lot. I feel like a lot of them are also concerned, the ones I've met with issues of systemic injustice, at least in late night. Yeah. Because you're sitting around talking about like politics all the time. And that just seemed to be where people fell. Well, especially, especially at the daily show. I mean, the daily show is a political comedy show versus like Mm -hmm. Jimmy Fallon. You know, I'm sure they have concerns (laughs) there, but you know what I'm saying? (laughs) I don't know if the I don't know if the writers' room is as political there, you know, or as like as concerned. Maybe I'm wrong. I hate to make generalizations because so much of what you end up talking about in the writers' room doesn't go on the show, and so I think it's really unfair to judge what is televised by like and decide you can draw conclusions about the writers. Right, right, right. But right, I know right. what you mean. Yeah. So, I think listening to you and like reading a bit about your bio, like your background, uh, growing up, 
as an African American girl in Madison, Wisconsin, you know that's an education of its own. I want to I want to talk more about that, but I can imagine you learned quite a bit about the world <laughs> in that scenario. Going to school, getting an economics degree, okay, like which is uh, that's an education. That's something I wish I knew more about. Uh, and then going to law school, doing antitrust work, and sort of the demystification of that process. You know, like I don't know, like it just feels like it feels like maybe like the, there could be like a romantic or idealistic notion about being a lawyer that you were quickly disabused of once you actually got out there, right? I mean, that's that was kind of the the track that you were on, or the that's kind of the experience that you had, right? I didn't want to be a lawyer for romantic reasons. I wanted to be a lawyer because I was a working class person who didn't understand what you were supposed to do in college. And then I went to college and I got out of college. And I had no idea what you were supposed to do after college. I'm first generation everything. And everybody was like, well, you could take the LSAT. So I took the LSAT and I did well at the LSAT. And then I ended up in law school and then I was a lawyer. It was completely mistaken, but you have to pick a path. I right. didn't want to work in retail forever. That's what I was doing before that. I spent six years at JCPenney. Oh yeah. And you, and you were like, you were piercing ears, right? At the, at the mall. I read yeah, that. that was my first job. Yeah, Claris. I did not pierce a single ear because I did not think that was going to be a great idea. But um, you don't so then I quit and went to JCPenney. Okay, okay. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. So... Anyway, just to continue my thought, you become a lawyer, uh, then you go out and you have all those experiences professionally. You're trying to pay off student loans and all the rest. You're kind of dealing with like the real world and the, you know, late capitalism and all that it entails. I feel like the success that you've had as a joke writer on Twitter, comedy writer on Daily Show, just knowing about your perspective, particularly reading your tweets. It, it kind of brought it into focus for me. You know, this is a person whose life experience and educational experience makes you like very well suited to be as incisive as you are on the issues and to write jokes that are substantive. You know, there's joke writers who are just kind of being silly. You know, there's different ways to tell jokes, but your jokes are funny, but they also tend to have some bite to them. You know what I'm saying? There's like a cultural criticism or if you want to call it like a meanness, you know, like there's a target and there's a real anger in there and there's an anger at injustice. And you know what I'm saying, right? But I feel yeah. like it, it makes sense. Like all these things sort of prepared you, whether you intended it or not, to get to the place where you would have something to say that was rooted and informed. 
I agree with that. I think growing up working class, a lot of people in the media are not working class. <laughs> a lot of people in comedy are not working class. I always felt like I had this very, very different perspective. But the nice thing about both the media and comedy is I, it taught me that that was okay. It was actually 100% okay to approach things differently from a black working class raised angle and to fight for, you know, that different opinion to be represented. But it was cool to not have the same story that reveals. I feel like, I feel like, uh, I mean, maybe this was your experience, but I feel like people would be, I don't know, like happy to have another perspective or maybe even like, I don't know, media culture, like you say, like all these people, like you do free internships or you're un, or not free, but unpaid. You know what I'm saying? Like the way that these mm-hmm. things are sort of set up to favor the rich, basically, you know, people who can work for free, uh, you know, to get a foot in the door. That's not a fair system. But I feel like hopefully things are changing a little bit. And I feel like maybe there would be, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a sense of uh, respect for somebody who had to kind of come up the hard way. I don't know. Maybe that's not how not it really. Not really. I, and I, I will not lie. I am a weird example. I don't think that my experience is representative. I think a lot of times of the folks in the media, folks in comedy, sometimes they just sort of want to make money and making money often involves making people comfortable, not really challenging their assumptions or worldview. I think to me, while I've had a successful career, I've also spent long, long periods just unemployed. And at least some of that, I think, is because I don't come from a perspective that makes people comfortable. And so, and I'm happy to talk about that too. And sometimes people want to hear that and sometimes they don't. And so, but I don't see it getting easier for like generations of journalists or comedy folks at, after me or anything like that. I just, I do see people who are fighting and I'm proud of them. But I think we need more systemic change than that on those fronts if we want to have different opinions really represented. Yeah. So like even a shred of optimism, like has it gotten even like a little bit better or no? You feel like? It's, I mean, and the TV side, it's awful because we, I came into TV during peak TV and now I see all these shows getting canceled and all these things being rebooted from like the 90s. Mm. And I, all the, you know, and all these shows being taken off streaming services. So like you have a show and you run it for two years and it disappears. And I'm, I'm sad about that. I miss people's old archives. I miss just buying a whole bunch of stuff and throwing like spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks and maybe having a show that doesn't have the broadest audience in the world, but has a dedicated audience is doing stuff that's fun and fresh and different, like succeeding on its own terms. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's going to keep happening. I'm excited about TV because it does continue to produce new things but I'm sad about just how much like, you know, TV has been decimated to a certain extent by all the cancellations and taking away the back catalog and the media. I mean, it helps if you live in New York, which is the biggest barrier to entry in anything I can think of, given that, I mean, the neighborhood I used to live in, in New York, the like a two bedroom apartment will apparently run you anywhere from $3,500 a month to $5,000 a month now. And that is the biggest barrier to entry in human existence. People do not make that kind of money and they definitely don't make it on things like entry level media jobs. And it's really, really hard to live there and eat and not die. And so that is really, really capping the amount and spectrum of perspectives we're getting there. What what uh, so, neighborhood was it? Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's like I mean, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation on this show because so many writers are in Brooklyn and in New York, and it's just like 
it's increasingly impossible to live there for so many people because it's so fucking expensive. I was living in a beautiful um, sub marketplace where the ceiling fell in on me three times. <laughs> That's how I afford to do Which is echoed in, you know, is echoed in your novel, right? Was it termites? <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't termites. I don't know what it was, but I, I did see it come down on me twice. So there's Damn. that. But that's what I'm saying is that like people will endure incredible like hardship in terms of living standard and like the kind of apartment that they live in just to kind of be there and they're paying through the nose for it. It's crazy. But I understand why people think it's worth it too. Yeah. Because you, you meet so many cool people. A lot of the coolest people I've ever met live in New York. A right. lot of the coolest things I've ever done are there too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great city. I love, I love visiting, you know, I've never lived there, but I love it. Whenever, every time I'm there, it's like, but it seems hard. It seems hard is the point. Like it just, the logistics of life, especially with like young children and everything. And like, I don't know the space, you know, that you can get in other places versus New York. Like you have to really be flush to have a lot of space in New York, but. Oh, the number of friends I had who left the city after the rent raise that like broke the camel's back is so high. Yeah. When it's was like that? It's like having a good time, huh? When was that? Um, this was like the last couple of years I lived there, 2015, 2016, 2017. Up through, I lived there until 2019. Just you would go to the bar and they'd be like, my rent crossed 3K. I'm really thinking about leaving. Hmm. <laughs> over and over and over again. And I just feel like, ah, because like, you know, I've been hanging out with all these people for years and just you know, hoping that they were finding a way to do it because we, but we did talk about it a lot. Like we talked about, you know, how much people made and how affordable things were. Like I had this group of friends who was willing to talk about what they were paying in rent and I appreciated them for that. Yeah. Um, transparency is cool. But yeah, just, you know, people would raise rent and they would scramble. I have a kid and I definitely, I mean, one of the reasons why I was okay with moving to LA is I knew we would never be able to give him like a full bedroom on our budget in New York. Like he had like a half bedroom. It didn't have a closet. <laughs> I was just going to put him in, a, just put him in a drawer when they're little, <laughs> right? He's tall for his age. So we, my husband and I would literally go in there and eyeball his bed and go, okay, how many years do you think we have left? Three right. right. his mattress, his oh twin my. mattress. Right, right. <laughs> so let's talk about Wisconsin a little bit more. You come up working class in Madison, which is often, it makes these lists every year that I like read obsessively because I'm always trying to find like the best place. You know, I don't know. I know it doesn't exist, but I like to pretend that it does. And Madison... I think has come in at number one before on like the list of best towns in America. It's kind of mm -hmm. got that reputation. Uh, does that square? I mean, like what was your experience growing up? Cause it's a pretty white place. Right. And uh, I don't know, it's a liberal, it's kind of a liberal pocket. Milwaukee and Madison are sort of the liberal hubs of Wisconsin, I think demographically. Mm -hmm. um, but can you just talk about growing up there? I mean, when I was growing up there, I didn't meet a single other black person who wanted to stay there past high school. We all just wanted to leave ASAP. I was annoyed to win a scholarship to college because I wanted to get out so bad. And my scholarship was paying my full tuition, but it was keeping me at the University of Wisconsin. And I wanted to leave that state. It was, <laughs> but I didn't have any money. <laughs> um, it is liberal, but nobody wants to talk about race. At least they didn't when I was growing up. Maybe that's changed. I don't know. It was... Liberal, but like, I mean, I went through all the stereotypes. Like people would touch my hair all the time. Like I, <laughs> I found it hard to get service at the pharmacy, you know, like it was just, 
it was way more hardcore than I think it is often depicted as when it's being voted the best place to live. And I remember that. I remember getting picked for those lists like tons and tons of times when I was a kid. And like when I was an older teen, just going, why? Like it's pretty, yeah. but the weather is brutal and the racism is awful. I, mm. yeah. And I meet, I meet, I've met other black people who've even lived there temporarily. And it's just like, it was time to leave. Yeah. <laughs> because of the racism. Oi, oi. So you <laughs> went to the University of Wisconsin, got your economics degree. Mm hmm. And do, do you have any artistic like lineage, like anybody creative, like in your family that you could point to who you feel like maybe you got your writerly bent from? My dad put seatbelts in cars. My mom, um, <laughs> like that's what he did for a living until he retired. He worked for General Motors. My mom, she, I have two autistic brothers. She advocates for autistic people to get them better educations and stuff. They, I mean, my, they, like my mom grew up in like, Inglewood in Chicago. It was a place you left is the way she put it. She was poor. They, she didn't like talking about it. It was hardcore. My dad just grew up in this lovely working class. Like I remember reading about Michelle Obama's family background. And it was just like, everybody goes to the factory and, you know, and I was like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's like his side. Everybody has jobs and they're the good jobs, but like they work them a lot and they're just sort of tired. The community is good there. I mean, I, the South side is just warm and friendly place to me. But the yes, and but your uh, but your family has like southern roots. Like uh, your parents, I think I read that. Like your parents grew up in Chicago, but their their parents maybe had come had moved from the south. They're all southerners. Yeah, Memphis, Little Rock, Arkansas, New Orleans. Okay, because uh, my parents are from Louisiana. I uh, just curious, but New Orleans. Well, yeah, where in Louisiana are they from? I mean, small towns. My dad is from a tiny town on the Gulf Coast called Morgan City. It's like an old petroleum town, like way down. Like uh, like during hurricanes, it's always like, will it be there? Wow. <laughs> kind of like, yeah, it's, in, it's intense. And uh, my mom's from a little town called Plaquemine, which is outside of Baton Rouge. Uh, but I spent a lot of time down there growing up. But So you go to Madison and you're like, I got to get out of here. Where did you go to law school? Columbia in New York. Oh, you did. Okay. So you got out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got out. That's how that I must have out. been good. Yeah. <laughs> and were you excited? Was it exciting to, to be in New York? I mean, did you feel like, I mean, I know like uh, law school's a lot and all that kind of stuff, but like it must have been fun. It was fantastic. They sent me a postcard when I was applying to college. I was a little late to apply to Columbia undergrad and I didn't have that kind of cash either. But I remember looking at the back of the postcard and going, where is this? <laughs> And then you show up and it's like just as amazing. I was like, I don't know why. It just feels like the standard campus, like the one that's in movies. And then you show up, of course, and their brochure is like Columbia has appeared in over 300 movies. And I was like, oh, this is why I think this is what college should look like. Because right. it does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's great. What are your what are your folks? I mean, your folks must be thrilled that you're uh, doing this. Like, what's their what was their take on you? Honestly, going I don't talk and... to them. We oh, they are hard. Yeah, they own a lot of guns for my taste. They do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you have some. You have guns in your family. I have guns in my family. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you go to law school, get out, do all that we've uh, kind of talked about. Like you know, you you work for uh, corporations and antitrust, a little bit for the government, make this transition, write for TV, develop this great Twitter feed, 
publish a bunch of stuff online. I mean, you've been really industrious, you know, like uh, I was kind of going through your byline and it's like essays, short stories, like you've been busy. And then you get to the survivalists and a book deal and a turn to fiction. And what I'm curious uh, to know is what that was like for you. Uh, because a novel is its own beast, right? It's one thing to write like a 30 minute episode and, or like a 2000 word essay or something, but to actually sit down and have to flesh out a novel is a chore. Uh, what was it like for you? Oh, I have three drawer books. This is the fourth. This was the one where I was just like, if this doesn't get published, I'm going to do something else with my life. My, one of my biggest dreams is to publish a novel, but yeah, this is the last one. It was, so I had a practice. I, was, I sat down every day. I very much knew what I wanted to achieve with this one. I outlined it. I knocked it out in six months. It just spent a while floating through the systems of getting representation and then like publishing proper, but easiest work of my life. I know that's not how first novels are supposed to be, but the the one of mine that I spent like eight years on is a drawer book. <laughs> uh-huh. So it's not your, it's your fourth book. Yeah. It's really your fourth book. But that, I feel like that squares with like most experience. It's like, oh, you're an overnight success, but it's like, not really, you know, yeah. it's, it's like <laughs> decades of failure or like more than a decade of failure and frustration. And like, it's hard to, I mean, I think it's hard to put a book in the drawer. It's so much work to write a book and then to, to have to sort of shelve it and start over again, you know, on page one. Was that tough for you or did you just sort of like take it in stride? Oh, me and the eight-year novel? Oh, man. Like, I feel like it was like a long-term relationship, kind of. We were together. I like, (laughs) (laughs) I threw out the front half of the book. I threw out the back half of the book. I changed the characters entirely. I I changed their backgrounds. I changed where they lived. I I changed um, what they were musicians. I changed the sort of music they did. I, um would have thoughts about them like most days of the week for eight years that I would go in there and like redo the manuscript. I got two different agents for two vastly different versions of it. Even I, <laughs> I, I, I remember the, the last one I, they sent it out and they were just like, the rejections were awful. They were just like, why we are very familiar with her career and her fans. Why doesn't she write something else? Like it's one of them. <laughs> What else does she want to write? Anything other than this? (laughs) I think music books are hard. Every time I look back and go, oh, it would have been really cool to get that published, I remind myself of, there's this book called The Last Revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton. I think she gets writing about music right. I think she really nails that whole, so it's a band that is in fiction, so you're never going to be able to hear their music. How do you write about that in a way that's compelling, which is, a very tough question to satisfyingly answer. And as much as I love those guys that I created and like loved their absolute hot mess of arguments and the eight years I spent with them, I don't think I did that. I don't think I wrote their music in a way that really popped off the page and made you able to imagine it. I don't think that I just don't think I transcended the form. I think she did. I think that's a great book. Everyone should read the last revival of Opal and Nev. I could see them. I could see their music. I could see the seventies that they fought in and made music in. I, I did not get there. Are you musical at all? Did you ever play an instrument? <sighs> 10 years of violin, two years of piano, one entire year of like improvised guitar where I wrote really bad songs and didn't actually learn how to play the guitar in like a, like a beyond bad punk musician sort of way. 
Yeah, I think that's it. We always have a keyboard around. We, I bought like a bass with a dragon's head that some dude in Queens got in Thailand. I, I <laughs> my that's the only place. That's the only place you can get a guitar like that. Right? right? It's just like off some dude. Yeah, it's got to be some dude in Queens. Off the Craigslist. Yeah. <laughs> wants to play you all of his music that some label didn't want. We sat there for like I sat there for like an hour with him in his apartment in Queens. Listen to oh this bass. God. It was amazing. Well, listen, what what you're saying registers with me because what I have found in my listening life, uh, you know, listening to podcasts and interviews uh, through the years, one of the things that I've noticed is that interviews with musicians tend to be unsatisfying hmm. to me. I get frustrated because it, the first of all, the person who's doing the interviewing is often not musical. Uh which is totally normal and fine, but it becomes hard. It's like they don't speak the language, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like hard for them to even uh, articulate what, they, what they're talking about, you know, or what they uh, want to know about. And then the musician oftentimes is, is, is unable to talk about it satisfyingly either because it's just something that's so uh, like action oriented. It's something they do, right? It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not like that kind of brainy writer brained type thing where it's language based. It's a different, it's its own language. And so I just find that conversations about it can often be frustrating to listen to. Occasionally somebody can get there, you know, or there'll be a musician who's, you know, really eloquent about it, but it's not like, it's not the norm. So it makes sense that that would be an extra challenge, you know, to try to write a book about it, to try to bring off the page because, you know, like you're saying, the people can't, people reading it can't hear it. Mm-hmm. It's like, you really, you really have to do the work on the page to get people to have an imaginative experience that's satisfying. So a question then is, did you bring anything from the failed drawer novels into the survivalists? Like, did pieces survive? Did you, was it, it must have been useful, you know, in, with the benefit of hindsight to go through all those learning experiences. But I'm wondering if anything carried over. I wrote an entire novel about gun dealing in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I had this cousin who got into trouble with the law. He was running around with gangs. I think he they accused him of shooting somebody. I got really fascinated with that. I started looking into like, you know, how do guys young guys on the south side end up with guns because Chicago's gun laws are amazing actually. It's that they drive them over from Indiana. And so I went out and to an Indiana gun show and actually reported from reported that out for BuzzFeed because I was like, okay, well what is Indiana like? How do you you know, like, what are the gun shows like? Um, all of that is in a failed book, but a lot, like, I took the most interesting sections of that and put, like, the research about the guns and the models and makes and what they do and, like, what gun running is like in this one. So that wasn't failed at all. That I feel like that book is actually very substantially represented here, even though it's a drawer book. Yeah, that book was, like, research yep. in a way. You know? <laughs> yes. Where I'm... I, I, I divided my childhood between Wisconsin and Indiana. So I also lived in Indiana for a spell. Where in Indiana was this gun show? I'm curious. Kokomo. Outside of Kokomo. Not like in the city proper. In like a auditorium yeah. right outside. Indiana's kind of weird, huh? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but like friendly? I actually loved the people in my brief trips there. I, listen, I think Midwest people in general, like, but you know, it's sort of like uh, people talk about Southern manners and social grace or whatever. You know, you sort of have that. Like my wife is from Minnesota, so they, they call it Minnesota nice. Have you ever heard that? Yes. Term? Where it's like, oh, hi. Yeah. You know, you am sure you've seen some of this. Yep. But it's, you know, it's it's only surface level. There can yep. be some 
not so niceness underneath it all. It's sort of like what the Coen brothers, I think, are getting at in Fargo, where it's like, yeah, it's Minnesota nice. And there's like homicidal tendencies just below that. Surface. Oh, a friend of mine is from Minnesota. And the way she puts it is everyone's really happy to meet you, but they really wanted to meet you in second grade. And that was it. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? They just like they wanted you have to be a lifelong friend to get in. Yeah, they wanted otherwise... to have grown up with you. And they were very skeptical about meeting you as an adult. And then I had a friend who moved there as an adult who 100% backed that up. She grew up in Wisconsin with me. It was like, before she moved there, it was like, oh, come on. It's basically going to be the same thing, right? Like, it's a, it's a five-hour drive. Like, who cares? <laughs> right. And it was really right. hard for her to connect with people. They they mostly hung out with their childhood friends. They did not want to meet her. Maybe they don't trust people who didn't, like, stick it out, you know? Maybe. Like, it's like, you got to be a lifer in those winters. And mm-hmm. You just show up. But I don't know. Every time I go, like, we go back to visit uh, my wife's family and it's usually in the summer. So it's like the weather's gorgeous and everything feels a little bit easier. I guess it's also recognizable to me because my experiences of early childhood in Wisconsin, it's a similar like tableau, like the, the landscapes are very similar. And, but I guess uh, maybe like more insular. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe, I guess because I have the end of my wife having grown up there, we have sort of her network to sort of, like people are nice, you know, but I guess if I showed up there with my family and suddenly started trying to make friends, it would, might be different. And what you're saying about it makes me think of adults in general. Like I often have this feeling of adults being really bad at making friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like how is it, how do you get worse at that as you get older? It seems like something you would get better at just having accrued more and more experiences with people. But like, I look at my kids and they just go to school and they're like, you want to play? You know, how kids yes. are. Like kids, kids, that's it. They go to the park. They have a friend. It's not hard at all. But you become an adult and it's like, I don't trust you. Like, what the fuck is going on? You know, it just or it's like you've got to be of a certain ilk in order to be in my crew and, you know, all this different stuff. But it's kind of depressing how people get worse at that instead of better as they get older. It doesn't speak highly of the species. <laughs> I think you get to this point as an adult where you are less willing to make changes to your life. And really making a new friend is a big change. That person is probably not going to love everything you love or dislike everything you dislike. And so you have to compromise to like be with them. I think that gets tougher as you get older and you're like, no, I like my life. I'm good. Why would I just want to meet people? Do something different. <laughs> Oh, there's something to be said too for like having your friends and being like, this is it. I don't have room for any more. Like I've got my five or whatever it is. Like, do mm-hmm. you have, do you have close friends? Like, are you somebody who's got like a crew or are you super social or antisocial or? I have one super, super close friend from college and we text like all the time. I, is this like the Nia? Is this like the Nia inspiration? I'm just gonna No, guess, like, the Nia inspiration no. is a train wreck friend that I had all the way through. <laughs> oh no, wait, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Part of part of the Nia inspiration is the nice part of the train wreck friend. And okay. like all of the Britney is the train wrecky part of the train wreck friend. Okay. <laughs> that I had for like 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long train wreck. <laughs> the intimacy of that friendship. Like, I mean, we, we went through a lot together. Like I, uh, she, she tried to, well, there was this dead guy on our couch in college. We were living with these people. <laughs> this this is a story. 
Wait, 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 wait. There's a there was a dead guy a on dead your couch, guy on the in, couch co- in college. We had this apartment this summer between like freshman and sophomore year of college. We it was in this house that was painted like cotton candy pink, so everybody knew it. They were like the pink house. This is important because when they found the dead guy, it was reported out through the news, and everybody was like, "Oh yeah, we heard that happened in the pink house." Because like Madison <laughs> isn't that big, and um. <laughs> That one of our friends was like doing a lot of drugs, like more than college students do. Like, it's funny how you know that, but we knew she was like doing a lot of cocaine. She like left our apartment and like went to go live in New York for the summer and told these two teenage drug dealers they could stay in her room. And so they were like dealing Adderall and we don't know what else um, out of their bedroom and inviting their friends who did drugs and sometimes didn't wear shoes and had dirty black feet over to our place um, because she told them that she could, they could live there. And so they would have all their people. And I would usually just go into this part. I was working 40 hours a week at JC Funny. No one else I worked with had a job. I needed to pay like my rent for next year. And so I was very much never there. Like, can we like maybe have a calmer existence? Like, do we have to live with like teenage white drug dealers who are like pretending (laughs) that they're, you know, runaways when they could just go back home to the suburbs and like, (laughs) So at one point they were, they would have all these parties and they would invite all these people over and like people would crash on our couch, but that's college. Like you, it was common in our circles to wake up and have somebody crash on your couch. But I like left for work at Penny's one day, you know, and like my like early aughts polyester get up, like ready for another day of like not selling enough jeans to people. And my friend calls me like in the middle of the workday, like two hours in. She's like, Hey, shout out. I was like, Hey, what? And she's like, Oh, um, you know, that, that guy who was sleeping on our couch. Yeah. He's dead. What? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean that guy's dead like he's just asleep she was like oh no like he's dead i'm like how do you know she's like because the paramedics said he was dead i was like what excuse me they were paramedics. she's like yeah we called 911 i was like are you serious <laughs> i had just left the house two hours before I'm like how was there a dug up was he dead when you left i don't know it's funny yeah, when yeah. when a guy dies and you don't have anything to do without it it's amazing how much you don't learn we didn't learn right. why he died or when we like were scanning his obituary for clues. <laughs> it had to be, it had to be, it had to be an opiate overdose. It sounds exactly like an opiate overdose. I have took no idea. The thing is all those people who were living there, who they were invited to their parties did all sorts of like, well, I don't, I don't even know what they did because I did not hang out with them. The rumor was that they did tons of drugs. And what's funny is our other respectable drug dealer friends who lived down the block who dealt like reasonable amounts <laughs> of reasonable drugs. This was kind of like, we're like, oh, those people you're living with, they're insane. They do unreasonable amounts of drugs. We just like make weed brownies and like do the occasional round of Coke. But those people... <laughs> Right, right. This is so dis- disgraceful. I didn't talk to her for six months. And then, like, at some point, she was just like, she emailed me and was just like, I want to continue the friendship. We've been friends for a long time. I realized that a lot of stuff went down in that house and somebody died and you hate me. But because um, she wanted to keep them there. She was the one who didn't want to throw out the drug dealers. So wait, the friend that went to New York and like, put these guys into your house that's the friend who wanted oh to no 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 that's my best friend at the time was the one who wanted to keep them there the friend who went to new york we just never heard from her again she would send in her rent payments and then nothing but my best friend it was living there and she wanted to keep the drug dealers in the house and we had a lot of fights about that because i didn't want to live with the teenage drug dealers and so when right. the guy died i blamed her i'm like you didn't kick these people out I wanted to kick them out. Me and my our third roommate had been talking about kicking them out for a month. Like we just, we didn't want the parties. The, these people wouldn't talk to me. They had their own thing. They didn't 
want to hang out. And I didn't want to hang out with them either. It was mutual. And I just didn't want all these, these people and their drugs and like the randomness in the house. I was the only black person in this entire scenario. And I was just convinced I was going to get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, when the cops come, yeah. when the Madison cops come, they're coming for me. They are. I would tell them that. They would just be like, oh, yeah. please, the cops aren't coming. They're just be like, they're doing the drugs. You never know if the cops are going to come. Like, I don't, well, you know? <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. But I mean, like, there would be. That's a reasonable thought to have, especially for somebody. Especially, I guess you weren't in law school at that point. But like, oh. if you're living with somebody who is doing illegal shit, don't you have potentially some legal exposure, even if you're not directly involved? I mean, I guess you could always claim you didn't know, but I mean, it seems like something that could get messy. It is actually having gone to law school. Yeah, it is something that could get messy. What if, um, I mean, it depends on how they try to argue the case they're bringing against you, but what if you aided and abetted? What if, you know, what if they, I mean, sometimes the cops will just make stuff up. What if they thought we gave them the drugs? We didn't, like me and that group of friends of mine who were living in the house, we think the drug dealers did that. But what if we were, you know, like facilitating the environment by not kicking them out? There's, it depends on like how you look at it legally. But I, I at the time, I, it's bizarre. I was like 19, I didn't know anything. I was surprised to learn that in fact, I had been concerned about the right things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, listen. Listen, I was on a road trip in like an RV in college with like, I went to Boulder. So we were all hippies for like a minute, you know, and I remember being on this road trip out West with my friends and like pulling off to the side of the road to sleep in some like, it was like a, what's the word for it? Like a consumer district. There were like stores, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't uh, out of the way. Like we were right in the middle of downtown in this town. And like some people were like sleeping on the roof of the camper and like, you know, it was just very noticeable. And I'm like this guy from the Midwest who grew up being chased by cops and like, you know, like redneck cops in Indiana who had nothing better to do than like fuck with teenagers. And I just remember having a very antagonistic relationship with the police and being afraid of them. And so I was like, all right, everybody, like, give me the weed. I'm going to like bury it. My friends are like, my friends are like, Brad's paranoid. Like, give the paranoid guy the weed. I'm like, listen, I'm not going to jail. Like, you're playing like bongo drums on the roof of a camper at two in the morning. Like, I'm not going to deal with the cops at that hour and have them search this thing and find the weed. And I feel, I feel good about that decision. I still feel good about it. I'm like, I'm thinking, you know, like I'm protecting myself. Like, we're going to bury the drugs, you know, and. uh, I'm with you. Bury that weed. Yeah. So. I relate, you know, and I'm glad that you didn't get a, uh, it sounds like, you know, it didn't end up being something that you had to deal with. Like they just took the guy out and like, what happened? At first they were like, well, the cops want to talk to you. And I was like, oh shit. And then it turned out they didn't like, they did their first round of interviews and I was not part of like any second or subsequent round. And I dodged a bullet and I could go back to work at JC Penney. And then I moved out because I was like, you know what, if you guys won't kick these people <laughs> Out of our apartment, then I'm going to leave. And I moved back in with um, my parents who lived across town. And yeah, that was that. And then I paid an absolutely ridiculous. We lost our security deposit because somebody threw a glass top coffee table off of our back deck. And then uh-huh. somebody ran up like at the time, a very expensive $140 in international phone calls. And then that was that. What were the international phone calls? Like buying drugs or? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing about leaving your house that you've conceded to drug dealers. You have no idea what's going on. (laughs) The pink house. Is it still pink? Have you been back lately? No, they painted it. I often wonder if that's our fault. (laughs) It's like a regular shade of blue now. You never know. 
Yeah, it's like, I feel like it's a little bit, uh, what's the word? You know, if you're going to be running drugs out of a house, you don't want it to be a noticeable house. That's my thought. Neutral tones. <laughs> Neutral tones. <laughs> Run drugs out of your tan house that nobody will yeah. notice. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so you're out in LA now. You've got this book in the world. Has it lived up? I mean, as somebody who's written all these drawer books, as you put it, and has kind of had this dream for a long time. What's the, like when the dream meets reality, like how's the experience been for you so far? I like it because um, despite the drawer books, this is the book I would fight for. Like this is, this is the one for me. Like I would be happy to defend it with a sword. And so all the things that have come its way, I'm very happy with because I absolutely love the underlying work and would kill for it. Yeah. What about, uh, what about, um, What's the word? Uh, adaptation. Like since you do screenwriting and, you know, writing for television as well and have been kind of uh, working in entertainment, like is there any talk of adapting it or is that something you want to do? I can't talk about that. Let's put it that way. Like, you know what I mean? It's something I want to do. And the, you know, it's my Hollywood crew is working on that sort of thing, but I can't talk about it. There's, so your agent is sitting slightly off camera right now. Yes, yeah. to my left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poking me if I say something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right. I understand. I understand. And then what about like, do you have uh, a vision like for how you would hope your creative life would grow from here? Because you're doing different things. Like you've got the Twitter, which I think is just like great, like joke repository. And maybe kind of, I feel like maybe you use it as a laboratory that might be the best use of Twitter mm -hmm. is like telling jokes, but as a writer, like, like you say, like honing a style or something, you know, and coming up with a way of communicating and a way of being funny. And then you've got uh, your literary career, which means novels, means short stories, means, you know, essays and stuff that you might write for the New York times or whatever it is. And then you've got the TV writing, like, do you have a sense of how you hope it will go uh, from here on out? Do you have like a, a plan or any kind of list of goals or something that you're kind of tracking? Well, I have a second novel that I'm not going to talk about in any great substance. I'd like to finish that. And then I'd like to start adapting my own stuff um, as a TV writer. I am looking for another show home. I'd love to do something else with television. I'm, I have a little bit of development I can't talk about, but that is fun. I sincerely hope to be able to talk about it someday because, you know, it gets public on the TV end. I basically want to, and all the essays and stuff are just things that I'm inspired by in the moment. And like, I'm so happy to have editors who don't mind if I hit them up with the absolute most random shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to keep that going too. I feel like you're really good at like cultural, cultural criticism. And like, not everybody is, you know, I feel like that's a particular gift is to be able to like rapidly assess and respond to things that are happening in the moment, you know, uh, I don't know. That's a particular thing that I think only a few people are good at because I, I don't know. I don't know if you feel this way, but like, I just, I don't have it. I, I come up with some response that feels good in the moment. And then like the next day I'm like, what? Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just... I'm impressed by people who can think that quickly. 
I guess I don't hang on any of it. I go, well, this is a thought I had like one day and the, the next day it's over. It helps when you talk about a lot of topical stuff. I mean, hopefully in three weeks, we're not all going to be like, ha ha, there's no speaker of the house, you know, like, <laughs> and so it's easy to let go of things that where the moment has passed. <laughs> yeah. 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 What a shit show. Like, <laughs> you know. I can't, I mean, I, it's enjoyable though, right? It's in, we're, and by the way, for listeners, because this episode will go up maybe after the, after the fact, like we're talking about the uh, inability for the Republicans to elect a speaker of the house in the United States Congress. And uh, the level of dysfunction, I'm sure you, you dealt with a lot of this when you were writing for uh, the daily show, but just like, I, I had this conversation last night with a friend where I'm like, what does this part, like the Republican party, what does it even stand for? Like, I don't even get like what they're about, you know, it just seems like, it just seems like some crazy cult or something. And it's, it's wild to watch a human being uh, like Kevin McCarthy withstand this like repeated humiliation on the altar of his ambition. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, yes. like, like, it's like this guy, it's like, what did I say to my wife this morning? This is really crude, but I'm like, I'm like, this kind of reminds me of one of these like, like wall street guys who likes to get peed on. Yeah. Um, yes, I've had those saying? thoughts for three days. I'm like, he's got a humiliation fetish and now it's public. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's like a kink. He's yeah. like, yeah, he's like sweating and like, you know, like, I'm like, man, I don't know any human being who would put himself through this for a job. And like, the other thing that's so, that's so funny about it is that even if he gets the job, ultimately, it's going to be a job in title only. He's mm-hmm. going to be on the shortest of short leashes. And he's going to have no functional power, essentially. He's going to have the job without any of the trappings. And yet he's willing to completely debase himself to get it. It's wild. Yeah, it's really clear that he's not going to be able to get all of them to vote for anything. He can't even get all of them to vote for him. So how is he going to get them all to vote for, like, you know, a 24-7 showing of Hunter Biden's laptop or whatever? He's not going to get oh, that. So why does he even want to do this? I would never want to lead the Republicans. They don't agree on anything. They don't like each other. They don't like themselves. Literally, who would want to do that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird bunch. It's definitely a weird bunch. Well, I have really loved meeting you. I have been an admirer of yours uh, and just like a fan. And you're just a delight on my Twitter feed, which I, I got to have to say, not everybody is. <laughs> like, <laughs> Twitter's, Twitter's a mixed bag in case you haven't noticed, but you are consistently funny and smart uh, and interesting. And I'm sort of marveling at all the success you've had, you know, like writing for TV. Like, I guess before I let you go, I should ask because you've done different kinds of TV writing. You know, there's the Daily Show, which is like you're writing jokes, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe bits too. Like they mm-hmm. do some bits, um, but then writing for like scripted television, like that's a different animal. Yep. Uh, do you have a preference? Like, what did you? I'm curious. Like, you did you? And you also wrote for Pod Save America, mm-hmm. if if I have that right. So like. I imagine that's more like political jokey stuff too, but like, yep. can you just talk maybe a bit before I let you go about like what you learned maybe doing joke writing and kind of churning through a daily show, uh, like the daily show, but a show that like airs, you know, multiple days a week versus writing scripted television that maybe goes up once a week and, you know, has more, a more narrative bent. The daily show taught me how to be fearless because every day at 9am you had to wake up and pitch 60 people in a room, including Trevor. And you couldn't be that, you had to like pitch something like kind of regularly and you know, it had to be good. You would basically be trying to make the funniest, most on point thing of the day in order to win the day and get your stuff written into a script. 
or hopefully write the script yourself. And it was really nice to go through that experience because I will never fear public speaking again. I will never fear doing anything in front of other people again. It will just never happen. And I also will not, you had to pitch like 25, 50 jokes a day. And so like, <laughs> I'll never fear How that did you do? How did you do? Like, I, I want to know, like, did you, did you do well from the beginning or was it something where you're like, wow, I was really bad at the beginning and then I got better. You know, or is it like kind of just up and down? It seems like it would be up and down, but like, how was it? It is up and down, but I definitely remember getting some Prince joke in the first day. Like the very first day I was there, like three hours later, I had a joke on television. I was like, wow, you guys serious? What was was the joke? What was the joke? Do you remember? Do not recall. This is like six years ago. (laughs) But I remember they were just like, whoa, first day. And I was like, hey, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. It's a nice way to start. You ebb and flow. Like there, there are days you hit worse than other days. You know, there. Every once in a while, in like early Trump, there were days I think when it was just hard to pitch anything because it was like, oh man, like I gotta care about Jared Kushner again. Are you serious? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fuck that guy. But your job is to get up off the mat and go. You know what? So since I have to be here, being paid to care about Jared Kushner, I'm gonna find a way to care about Jerry Kushner and that's a useful attitude in comedy too I mean everything isn't going to be like your favorite subjects to do jokes about and so it is nice to just sit up there and know that you can start out with something and then add a twist and then end up with a punchline about things that you don't care about just to like you know put food on the table so it was a good ex- way to do that too I know just before we get before we leave the daily show is like it's it, the time that you were writing for the daily show in it's like a particularly perilous time in our political history. Like, you know, like the stakes were so high. Like it had to be in some ways, I don't know. I can see how it could be easy to write jokes, especially from like a place of anger, you know, or anger at injustice and just like, fuck this shit. But I could also imagine where like the stakes were so high that it was like, maybe like too heavy. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. the, I can imagine like a malaise, you know, being like, oh my God, you know, how do, how do I be funny when it's this grim, you know? Very much so. There were definitely days when I think everybody was just kind of like, so what did the jokes mean today? So like, what is the, and also I think he was fairly new at it at the time. Like he'd only been doing the daily show for a year. So it was also like, what kind of show do we want to have? A lot of things were kind of up in the air, but also. You mean Trevor. Yes, you mean Trevor. Trevor. But also yeah. on top of all that, there was just like, so what does Trump mean? What kind of president is he going to be? We didn't know that yet. I started working there like, four days after he got sworn in or something insane like that. And so when he started like throwing exec orders at people every day and stuff, we were all just like, so is this going to become law? It took like a long time to figure out how he worked. And so it was hard to joke about him on that regard once until you got the hang of it, because we didn't know what kind of president he would be because he came from outside of government and he didn't seem to care about the, the workings or the rhythm of government as much as other presidents had. And so it was just sort of hard to tell how he works. A lot of political comedy is referencing people, things that about people that where people know what you're talking about. Like if you reference Ted Cruz or whatever, you know, it's about like referring to the fact that nobody ever seems to like him, like interpersonally. <laughs> so that your right. audience goes, oh yeah, Ted Cruz, that's who we're joking about. We remember that. He doesn't have any friends or whatever it is. And so right. it was tough to do that with Trump because he had all that bluster and he had all that like business person stuff, but just as a president, because he didn't have like a, like a legislative background, it was hard to know how much of his stuff would become law, especially since really from a constitutional perspective, he was trying to do a ton of stuff that either did get shut, shot down or should have been, but also he stacked the courts. And so the courts made it so that it was hard to predict what would become law and then what would stick because they weren't deciding things based on things like prior law anymore. 
and his lower level judges. Now the Supreme that's leaked into the Supreme Court where they're just kind of like, well, we, we had a feeling today. And so like, we don't think you should <laughs> like be You able- said it earlier. You said it earlier, the mood, uh-huh. you know, like that's a, that's a weird word to associate with like the highest court in the land. Like what's the mood guys, you know, like they are like, like forget pri- prior case law. Oh, they are robes and fives at this point. Like I <laughs> just, <laughs> somebody who like used to practice law, I'm like you guys aren't reading the law that much anymore. Are you? Like that's kind of beside yeah. the point. Ugh. All right. So then narrative, narrative, uh, you, you make the, the leap from the daily show to writing scripted television, which I guess squares, squares more with like your novel and, you know, like more traditional modes of storytelling. But was that uh, a leap that you were happy to make? Like, was, was it, was it nice to maybe get out of like the grind of writing uh, jokes day after day and showing up at 9am and having to pitch? Did the pace change? Was it uh, like a relief or I don't know, was there less, less, uh, less action? Like, was there something like, was it a letdown in any way? Because it wasn't as like, um, what's the word? There wasn't as much adrenaline. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what was the shift like? Um, I did miss the adrenaline a bit, but it was really nice to get out of Trump land. Oh my God. Do you know how much less I thought about Trump every day? I actually I put imagine. this restriction on. I'm like, I am not going to listen to his voice anymore. And I have not heard his voice since I left The Daily Show. I figure if he says anything important, they will report that for me in a news article that I can read on my phone. And I don't have to listen to his voice. I had spent so much time like staying up watching like, you know, 11 p.m. CNN coverage to try and pitch an angle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I yeah. saw more yeah. Trump than anyone should ever have to. Of course, <laughs> Listen, there was a there was an oral history of the Daily Show that came out in book form after John Stewart left, and I read that book. And when I got done reading it, I felt uh, a sense of like there was a sense of gratitude for like like wow, like covering this and trying to make jokes day after day, but also a sense of like real like sympathy, like. Yeah, I think the way he put it was like having to like do this show day after day is like eating a shit sandwich every day. Um, I think it was something like that. And it wore on him to a degree that I think I didn't recognize, like wore on him emotionally. Uh, I don't know, just became like, I think it maybe made him like depressed mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or Im- embittered. You know what I'm saying? Like, and then so I can imagine working on a show like that and having to kind of eat the shit sandwich and then make jokes from it every day after a while starts to have a toxic effect, you know, and starts to affect your mood, right? Sometimes, but well, but also the biggest problem in my opinion was just so much of what was going on was actually just really scary. I mean, I remember just going, are we going to be on the air in like two years or are they going to outlaw satire? Like that was the mood. Right. And so yeah. it is definitely, you are there telling jokes about the bad, depressing things that happen in the world. And so you really have to engage and go deep on the depression. And that is hard to do and hard to like emotionally sustain. But there's also just, yeah, I mean, he was like doing stuff like the Muslim ban, you know, yeah. like the Muslim ban is depressing and racist and garbage. And it was ruining people's lives. There was all that footage about people getting stuck in airports trying to see their family. It would be hard to just watch like hours and hours of coverage of that and try and find an angle. It was also hard to just deal with the implications of it. We were making jokes about it and that was fair and it was a way of bringing attention to that. And that was 100% cool. But also like the Muslim ban was wrecking people's lives. It was just a really depressing thing to have to deal with. I definitely left 
the Daily Show with a lot more respect for things like activism. I think jokes are fun, but I think that sometimes you see these depressing issues and it's it's best to get directly involved, you know? And jokes are definitely a way to deal with it, but like you should, you know, be calling your congressman, you should be organizing with your friends, you should be like trying to reverse the Muslim ban. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And it's, you know, it's interesting, too, because I think Jon Stewart bowed out in 16. Mm-hmm. So Trevor Noah took over right as things got, like, super dark. Mm-hmm. Like, things were chaotic and dumb and wrongheaded and, you know, in some ways menacing under uh, Stewart, you know, with the, the era that he did. But, like, Trevor Noah really covered, <laughs> like, a dark era in American political history. I mean, that is a... That's a grind. And, it's, you know, he just he just signed off. Right. He yep. just ended his tent. Yeah. I can imagine why he just must have been like, OK, I'm done. I'm tapping out. <laughs> I did my time. That's a it's a heavy lift. Right. Yeah, uh, it is heavy. Do you, what's he going to do next? I wonder. No I guess idea. He's got to figure it out. No <laughs> idea. All right. Well, listen, I could talk to you all day. I've uh, I've really enjoyed meeting you. Congratulations to you on all of the success that you've had you know, across the spectrum and in particular with the survivalists. And I wish you luck on all that you have going. I'd be interested to see what you do next. Thank you. It has really been a pleasure talking to you too. All right, guys, there we go. That's it. That's the conversation. That's uh, Kashana Cawley. Her debut novel, The Survivalists, is out there now from Soft Skull. You can find her on the internet at kashanacawley.com. She is famously on Twitter. Her handle is at kashanacawley.com. One more time, the book is called The Survivalists. Go get it. Read it. Share it with your friends. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Please support the show if you like the show. You can do that for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. My novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, is out there in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. Again, it's called Be Brief and tell them everything. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter once a week, email newsletter. It's free. Sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast. It takes two minutes. It helps the cause. Wherever you listen, give the show a rating. If it's possible, write a review. The show is online at otherppl.com. It has its own YouTube channel. You can watch these conversations if you so desire. Go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. And when you find the Other People channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. Watch the highlights on TikTok. Follow the show on TikTok. You can also follow the show on Twitter, at Other PPL, and on Instagram. We're all over social media. If you want to email me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. All right. I hope everything is going okay in the new year. I hope you're not stressing out, giving yourself too many you know, goals and things to do. I feel like it gets a little bit ridiculous. Everybody tries to totally reinvent themselves and do a million things. And then when they fall short, they feel bad about themselves. Just, you know, let's all relax. This is what I'm telling myself. Do the best you can. Maybe do some light cleaning. So I hope you're doing all right out there here in the early goings of 2023. And next up on the program, I believe will be Bruce Wagner, the chronicler of Hollywood, Los Angeles, 
this place. His work is very much associated with this place, though I think he would contest that characterization a little bit, which I think we get into in the conversation itself. It feels overdue having Bruce Wagner on this program since I am based here in Los Angeles. He's a very interesting person, fascinating life story, and a fascinating writer. So stay tuned, and I'm going to have some interesting news to share soon. So stay tuned for that. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'll let it be a surprise. Mm-hmm.